yeah, content warning right up top for this episode. Uh, there is mentions of violence against women and child death. So if you're not about that, maybe don't listen to, I don't know, the last 15 minutes of this episode or so. Uh, but otherwise, I hope you do enjoy. Now, do I have your full attention? Screw you. Hello to Yogi, hello to Boo-Boo, hello to don't forget your goat leggings. Well, par me all over the place. Eddie, what are you doing? The best I can! How did get the money in? How did you get the woman? What do you There's always magic What's in the basket? Well, I guess the first thing we need to address is the fact that this podcast is cursed. Yeah, so we recorded an episode on a movie entitled Francis in the Haunted House, which is about Mickey Rooney and a donkey solving a crime, and we lost it. It's a masterpiece of cinema, and it's gone. Everything gone um basically what happened is i got like a quarter of the way through editing the episode and then uh audacity crashed while it was saving which it turns out will corrupt your file beyond repair forever and it was right after we'd finished recording the exorcist episode which is the last episode we released uh and i i'm convinced that it's the exorcist curse continuing on into the modern day I don't think there's any other explanation, really. Uh, surely, <laughs> surely not that I'm a moron. Definitely. I mean, it's really just salt into the wound because this time this year we were meant to be all meeting up, going on Disneyland trips and having fun together. And then, you know, digging up Mickey Rooney's bones. And obviously that has not eventuated because of, you know, worldwide circumstances. And this is really just extra you know sand in the eyes <laughs> like, it's also a very typical way to mark our first anniversary <laughs> i know <laughs> his bones are so cold right now they're so cold and lonely and they could have been on indiana jones in my fanny pack <laughs> and it was a good episode too uh, but you'll never know so um... a donkey tries to frame rock really for murder. It, it plays on so many levels. And I think we also got to be very like vulnerable about um, our appreciation for Mickey Rooney, because really he is the inspiration behind this podcast, his larger-than-life legend, and the really bizarre gamut of his filmography. An astonishing career, an astounding man. And we paid tribute to him. It was very tasteful, I think. Um, as tasteful as it can be when it's an episode about a talking donkey. But um, it just was not meant to be. And I think that's really emblematic of everything that ever happened to Rock in his entire life. <laughs> Remember, he was supposed to host the Oscars. That didn't happen. He's at the core of this very podcast. Every time before we record, it's really the spirit of Ronk that gets inside all of us and tells us <laughs> to put on a show. So that's what we aim to do. We cherish his memory more than his children do. You ever think about that? Like, we probably know him better than the people he raised. Because I'm sure they've also, like, blocked out, like, large parts of their childhood. But, 
Are you saying we're more filial children then? <laughs> I, yeah, I, we absolutely are. If Ronk were Keith Raniere, okay, <laughs> Todd would it. be Nancy, right? And I'd probably be Mark. And uh, who would Amelia be? My all those like rich heiresses bankrolling his yeah, legal fights? Yeah, you'd be one of the Bronfmans. What would the brand look like? What would the brand look like? Oh, a, a weenie world. True. Okay, yeah, fair enough. Well, that's another thing we need to address. We finally found an image of Weenie World, which is Ronk's failed hot dog-centric eatery. Uh, and we discovered that it's not spelt Weenie in the way that Weenie would be spelt. Normally, Weenie is spelt W-E-E-N-I-E. That's how you spell Weenie. Not so, according to McGurini. <laughs> W-E-E-N-E. That's Ween World. That's not weenie. <laughs> He's an innovator. He also probably couldn't read. <laughs> like, for being honest here. <laughs> I'm just very disappointed that we'll never get to eat there and try the Miklish ween um, <laughs> that was on the menu. But this is a call out to audience members. If you have eaten there, if you do have some kind of Ween World <laughs> memorabilia, please let us know. For the love of God, let us know. If you ever met Rock like in a parking garage, <laughs> if he ever spit at you on the sidewalk. If you're Jack Nicholson and he was outside your house <laughs> once. If you're Jack Nicholson listening to this podcast. <laughs> Hi, it's Jack Holm. Uh, no, he sure isn't. He's out of the country. Oh, I, I figured as much. Well, tell him that Mickey Rooney came by. Oh, I sure will. Thank you. Okay, bye-bye. Bye. Sure he's out of the country. All these people that are important are out of the country. Jack Nicholson. Jack Nicholson definitely does not know what a podcast is. I'm um, not sure he even knows who he is anymore. Uh, oh, you know, but I feel like if Jack Nicholson were to listen to a podcast, you know what it would be? What would it be? It, it would be Dennis Quaid's podcast, <laughs> The Denisance, which I just found out about like 10 minutes ago. I mean, I got to hand it to him. It's a bit catchier than what's in the basket, isn't it? It's certainly catchier than what's in the basket. <laughs> we picked the dumbest fucking name. I would love to go back and look at what like the other contenders were, because I'm sure they were way better than what's in the basket. I don't but... think they were. I don't think we had any. <laughs> just settled on it it was very hard it's a very hard thing and then you see other people who've like solved that issue by having good names for their podcast and you're just like well i guess it just wasn't to be <laughs> and uh we're not fans of dennis quaid anyway because of the way he treated meg ryan so he can have his podcast it'll just never be as good as ours so do you think he's ever seen francis in the haunted house no <laughs> i mean i guess the audience can't verify that we've seen it either <laughs> there's so many good bits in that episode i'm so mad we have some really good gags but you know say la vie how much room for pool is there we own all the land. We've already made arrangements for relocating the cemetery. Oh, you're kidding. Oh, come on. I mean, that's sacrilegious, isn't it? Oh, don't worry about it. After all, it's not ancient tribal burial ground. It's just people. Besides, we've done it before. When? In 76. Right down there. Hello, everyone. Welcome to What's in the Basket podcast. I am Amelia, joined as always by my co-hosts Tiff. Hello. And Candace. Hello. And today it's my turn. I'm going straight back to 1982 
because I know the audience would deeply <laughs> resent me doing that. So <laughs> I didn't even think of that until right now. Again, I threatened it at the end of my last episode. And well, you know, some promises I do keep. And, and this is one of them. So continuing kind of with our sort of, I mean, it's more of a tangential theme uh, for our spooky season uh, of cursed films. I am going to be covering, I guess, what is the opposite number to the film that I covered a year ago now thing with Toby Hooper's 1982 supernatural suburban horror masterpiece, Poltergeist. So in the beginning, there was a family who lived on a farm. This family is a normal family for all intents and purposes, living a simple life in the sticks when they are set upon by a group of evil aliens hell-bent on bringing terror into their lives. Meanwhile, one of the aliens befriends one of the children. Can their bond bring peace to the family? The answer is no, <laughs> or at least not enough for it to be screenworthy, according to Columbia, who, upon receiving the script for Night Skies, ostensibly the sequel to Close Encounters of the Third Kind, written by John Sayles, said before rejecting it. Now, Steven Spielberg was not to be deterred by this rejection, the script was based on his original idea. Um, so he took the script idea to MGM with the proviso that he would produce the film while another person would direct the film because of his contractual obligations with Universal Studios. Now, you might have noticed some similarities with this script idea, the eventual end product of which is Poltergeist and a certain favourite of Tiffany's, mm -hmm. E.T. So both films spawn from this one idea and each landed in very different places from the original Night Skies script. Um, it was the involvement of director Toby Hooper that would lead to the directional change from aliens to ghosts, with Spielberg approaching Toby Hooper to direct and Toby being like, I don't want to do aliens. How about ghosts? Toby Hooper was right. Yeah, I mean, as always. as always, not really, but I don't think Spielberg ever made a movie as good as Texas Chainsaw Massacre. That's a controversial statement, but I'll stand by it. <laughs> this is the movie that is just as real. Just as close. Just as terrifying as being there. Even if one of them survives, what will be left? The Texas Chainsaw Massacre. After you stop screaming, you'll start talking about it. Well, it was it was um, Texas Chainsaw Massacre that drew Steven Spielberg's attention to Hooper. But again, he was like, I don't really want to direct a film about aliens and suggested Ghost because he was interested in directing a ghost story. Uh, and it's from this point that we begin to encounter what essentially is the key problem with Poltergeist, and that is the question of creative credit for this movie. So there's a lot of differing accounts for who exactly is responsible for the genesis of Poltergeist, and it continues through from the writing stage right into production, and it's really difficult to sort of muddle out what exactly happened and who exactly made what decision. Uh, so what we do know uh, is that while Spielberg was shooting Raiders of the Lost Ark, he and Hooper collaborated on creating a treatment for the ghost story. Uh, the earliest known draft of this treatment was dated March 31, 1980, and it had been retitled from 
uh, Night Skies to Nighttime, and it was later revised to It's Nighttime by the end of August 1980. That's not better. <laughs> it's not better. <laughs> it's worse, I think. <laughs> In this original treatment, there are a few elements that we can see have made it across into the film's final form. The freelings, the suburban setting, the TV set flickering, and the dead bodies in the pool. The psychic and the paranormal investigators were all there as well. While some of the key elements, like the abduction of Carol Ann and the true nature of the cemetery beneath the home, had yet to be devised. To turn this treatment into a script, Spielberg initially approached Stephen King, um, but this potential collaboration came to a swift and brutal end. Uh, according to the author John Baxter in his biography of Spielberg, King and Spielberg had an amiable lunch, after which King departed for England, leaving his publisher to negotiate a deal on his behalf. Doubleday, King says, asked this incredible amount of money to do the screenplay. This is for somebody who had never done a screenplay that had been produced. MGM and Spielberg refused to pay it. I got a letter from Spielberg saying he was really unhappy that it turned out this way. He told the SF and fantasy film journal Cinema Fantastic, really, as far as writing, it would have been the experience of working with him and watching him work. I could have used that, but in the end, I would have been hired help. Which is a sentiment which carries on through the entire production of Poltergeist. So instead of Stephen King, Spielberg approached uh, Michael Grace and Mark Victor about a potential remake of the 1943 Spencer Tracy Irene Dunn and Event Johnson number, a Guy Named Joe. Uh, this is the film that Van Johnson had the horrible car accident in the middle of filming that nearly cost him his career, and uh, it was Spencer Tracy's stubborn refusal to allow them to replace him that really led to Van Johnson's career taking off. Uh, fun fact, uh, Steven Spielberg would actually go on to remake this film in 1989 with the film Always. How did I get out of that one? You didn't get out, Pete. Well, either I'm dead or I'm, I'm crazy. You're not crazy, Pete. I'm dead? That's right. He was up in that plane doing his dumb stunts. So now I'm supposed to give inspiration to some flyer. There's your boy. But Grace and Victor were more than intrigued by the idea of creating a ghost story and got onto the job of converting It's Nighttime into a screenplay. Grace later said, Spielberg had read two scripts that I wrote with my ex-partner, Mark Victor. Death Hunt, which was a tough adventure based on a true manhunt in Canada during the Depression, and a multi-character comedy about air traffic controllers called Turn Left or Die. He said in the combination of tough action and character development in Death Hunt and the humour in Turn Left or Die convinced him that we were right for the project. When describing It's Night Time, uh, Grace went on to say, Stephen's treatment was more a series of ideas and possible scenes. His idea of setting the story in typical Spielberg fashion in the suburbs was unique, as was his idea for ghosts coming out of the TV. Ideas were evolving and we were doing research into ghost catches, hauntings, etc. and watching horror movies. Toby's Texas Chainsaw Massacre was the scariest film I'd ever seen up to that point in time. I thought, whoa, Spielberg must want to go hardcore horror with this one. In order to make this film really different a la Toby Hooper, we had to kill many of the family members. 
Spielberg recoiled at that idea, but said we could pick one person to die, and we said Carol Ann. He told us, smiling, we were sick but to proceed. We didn't kill her, obviously, and this solution to killing her, having her disappear into another dimension, came about in conversations with Spielberg. So they took the trouble of writing it all up, and when they finally turned in their version, Spielberg was deeply unsatisfied with it. He found their version, which did still contain the death of Carol Ann, too graphic and too violent and took to reworking it himself with frequent collaborators Kathleen Kennedy and Frank Marshall. Toby Hooper, um, I it's a stupid way to spell Toby. Let's just get that right up top. Tobe. Ween. It's Tobe. Toblerone. Yeah, it's a lot like Ween. Toblerone Hooper uh, also allegedly offered his input in this period of rewrites. However, Spielberg would later claim that he wrote this version of the script completely by himself. Uh, this claim was later contradicted by Fangoria magazine editor Bob Martin, who claims that up to eight ghostwriters had a crack at reworking Grace and Victor's version. So, I mean, Spielberg likes to take a lot of credit for writing this, and it's one of the few films where he does have the writing credit. He does have a lot of input into lots of his other films, but this is like one of the only ones where he does have that credit. But it seems like Toby Hooper did have some input and it's just not really acknowledged by Spielberg anyway. I don't think it's unfair to say that Spielberg is an egomaniac. So. I mean, it's only going to get worse from here. Can I just say something real fast? Um, so I looked up the Guy Named Joe remake because it was really bothering me. I need to know who was in it. Um, the Spencer Tracy part is Richard Dreyfus. <laughs> the... Irene Dunn part is Holly Hunter. Um, right. The Van Johnson part is some guy I've literally never heard of before. One of the Marlboro men, um, Brad Johnson, whatever. And uh, the Ward Bond character is John Goodman, who is inexplicably given third billing because nobody knows who the fuck Brad Johnson is. <laughs> and then Audrey Hepburn is one, two, three, fifth build. I did so, know that Audrey Hepburn was in it, yeah. Why did she make this movie? Did Spielberg have... Just the chance to work with Spielberg, I guess. I assumed that he was blackmailing her. He had some sort of evidence of tax evasion or something, <laughs> and she would be in his shitty remake. Maybe he was willing to film it in Rome, unlike Friedkin. <laughs> you know what? <laughs> that would be really good if this movie about, like, aerial firefighting in Colorado <laughs> was actually filmed in Rome. That's something Spielberg would do. Um, so the troubles with the script would not stop there. In 1982, a young actor slash writer, always a good combination, uh, named Paul Clemens and his co-writer Bennett Michael Yellen would allege that in January 1980, they submitted via their agent a script treatment called Housebound to Amblin Entertainment. Uh, and Spielberg's office would deny ever receiving such a manuscript. And Housebound was a haunted house story about a family consisting of a mother, father, elder daughter, middle son, and young daughter who live in a strange old house which traps the family. The youngest daughter ends up being kidnapped by the house and hidden somewhere inside it. As the family attempt to get her back, they can hear her voice calling out somewhere within the house for help. It's discovered that the home was built on top of a swamp where people had died under mysterious circumstances. And at the climax, the bodies of those who drowned in the swamp come crashing up from the floor beneath and attack the family. There is also a part of the treatment where a living tree that is found inside an upstairs bedroom attacks the father 
and another room that takes on a throat-like appearance with a tongue as it attempts to suck and swallow things from an outside room. Clemens and Yellen said they never heard anything back about this treatment that they sent in, and no one at Amblin Entertainment ever admitted to having received it. So there's obviously some kind of similarities <laughs> between the scripts, but I think it's also important to say that probably Amblin received a lot of manuscripts in this time, and I, I mean, it's a ghost house story. It's not really out beyond the pale. But how does one die mysteriously in a swamp? I think you just drown. Yeah. Or whatever. <laughs> Dying mysteriously in the swamp is like when people are like, she died mysteriously, you know, in, in a national park surrounded by grizzly well, bears. It's like, that's like not mysterious. from like Boggy Creek. You know, I have to say, Poltergeist would be better if it were a Boggy Creek crossover. It's hard because um, I feel like there are enough kind of without like feeding into conspiracy theories um documented cases of plagiarism in hollywood we all know it goes on that you know it kind of like in, in fiction publishing it's always the mark of an amateur to you know have your manuscript delivered via registered mail so it has to be signed for because you're so paranoid about people stealing your ideas but it definitely happens in a studio production environment you know oh absolutely um, and i also wouldn't put it past someone that powerful to feel like you know oh good yeah. good idea good treatment mm, it's mine now too bad that you know steven freeling now lives in this house on this swamp steven steven freeling i'm also gonna say i'm glad that stephen king another person named stephen didn't get involved because instead of like selling real estate craig t nelson would be like a sexually frustrated writer and the whole thing <laughs> would be transposed to maine and yeah. then it would be like some magical old person like every stephen king story yeah and movie. it just wouldn't end well but after becoming aware of the similarities between his script and the by this time retitled Poltergeist script, he got his hands on a copy and promptly went about launching a $37 million lawsuit against Spielberg. So there are some key differences between the two scripts and some have claimed that the similarities are only reminiscent of the genre more than anything else. However, after four years of legalities, the case was eventually settled out of court for an undisclosed sum. Comparisons have also been drawn between Poltergeist and the little girl lost episode of the twilight zone missing one frightened little girl name bettina miller description six years of age average height and build light brown hair quite pretty last seen being tucked in bed by her mother a few hours ago last heard aye there's the rub as hamlet put it for bettina miller can be heard quite clearly despite the rather curious fact that she can't be seen at all Present location, let's say for the moment, in the Twilight Zone. And it does make me think, because we, we watched this yesterday and you guys were speculating as to why have a teenage daughter who doesn't seem to do much when all the energy is sort of focused on the youngest daughter. And I say it's probably the influence of this episode of The Twilight Zone and it being centered on a little girl. But, I mean, we'll probably never know where all of the ideas came from, how many people got ripped off, how many people were actually involved in writing it. Uh, whether Spielberg received notes from Toby Hooper that he promptly threw in the bin. And we probably never will understand why they thought It's Nighttime was better than Nighttime <laughs> as the title for the fucking script. <laughs> It's it's like the difference between like what's in the basket and like here is it's in the basket, you know. This is here what's in is. the basket. You know, <laughs> this is like... what's in the basket. 
It's Belial. Like, there's no question involved, you know? Um, yeah. Especially because nighttime, it's like, ooh, is there something specific about... You're like, yeah, it's a horror movie. There's always something specific about the nighttime. But that's so fucking stupid. The idea that this is partially cribbed from a Twilight Zone, to me, is more reassuring than the reading that I got from a quick glance at Spielberg's script, which is that uh, the inclusion of a quote-unquote um, 16 and very beautiful uh, girl was just some weird shit which probably, I mean, it probably, probably still could be i mean yeah but yeah as i said we'll probably never know how it finally came to be um with all of those working parts but toby hooper himself was quoted in fangoria um saying that poltergeist will always be a tricky movie a number of people who should have got credit didn't get credit there's a lot of magic and business mysticism connected with it we're all still trying to figure this one out so that's not very reassuring when the director of your film is like, nah, I don't know who did it. <laughs> Somebody did, though. Well, it's it's <laughs> kind of like, look at how many people don't know that George Lucas didn't direct the entire original trilogy. They think that because here's this very visible, plaid-wearing, head-shaped-like-a-candied-yam nerd man, <laughs> that he's wholly responsible for executing this vision. And it might be his vision, but at the same time, he had a lot of really competent, seasoned people around him. And they had a lot of input on this. Like, again, Irving Kirshner directed Empire Strikes Back. And do you think anyone really, like, remembers that or talks about it? No. He also made Robocop, too. So already that's a stronger legacy in film than Steven Spielberg has. I think we can all agree on that. <laughs> um, but I think Lucas and Spielberg both have that, um, that kind of Hitchcock mystique thing about them where people are very quick to credit them with things that they might not have actually even been in the room for. Yeah, I, I like, mean, yeah. On, on other things, yep, definitely. But I feel like the hand of Steven Spielberg is really omnipresent in this. Like, almost to the point where it's like Selznick levels of interference here. Oh, no, definitely. <laughs> um, yeah, there's, there's got... It, it, there's... There's too much schmaltz, I think, for it to be a true, like, a Toby Hooper movie. I think it's it's obviously a Steven Spielberg movie. Because, you know, the same reason I, I just can't watch E.T. No offense, Todd, but it's just, like, gives me a toothache, you know? It's just... It, Fucking love E.T. I, you know, the only part of E.T. I really get is when Elliot's like, you can't take him away from me! It's the only part of the movie that really feels genuine to me, but that's I, I really didn't, I think, have very little experience with E.T. as a kid. I had more experience as a kid with, like, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, so I understand the Toby Hooper thing better than I understand the Steven Spielberg thing. But fuck Steven Spielberg is what I'm trying to say. Yeah, I think for me, it's definitely Spielberg is a bit of hit and miss in his films. Like, I do appreciate some of the family magic aspects of his films. Uh, and then other times, I'm just like, you are unhinged. Uh, like, what is it? AI? AI is insane. We have to do an AI episode one day. That is the craziest fucking movie. <laughs> so, I mean, yeah, it's real hit and miss for me. I think E.T. is really good, and I really like this film, and I think that this film particularly benefits from that kind of Spielberg influence because it makes it quite different to other horror movies of its kind. But, yeah, there is a little bit of hokum and, like, general cheesiness. One thing I appreciate about Spielberg is that when you have his genre movies in particular, it feels like, and I'm sure there's some example that's not coming to mind, it's going to make me sound like an idiot, but um, there's a lack of, like, sexual overtone 
like, I think there's a certain restraint involved, like, in adapting Jaws and getting rid of the whole, like, Hooper sleeping with Ellen Brody subplot was a great decision. There's not a lot of unnecessary flesh. Poltergeist, really, with the exception of the scene where Joe Beth Williams is um, wearing the football jersey and then she gets knocked up the wall and the ceiling, there's not a lot of unnecessary, like, tits and legs. And I think that it's kind of a, a, a unique asset at a time when the 70s was such, a, was such a race to the bottom in terms of what you could do in commercial filmmaking. On the other hand, E.T. is naked a lot. <laughs> <laughs> He's... Okay. Do we think that on E.T.'s planet, nudity has any kind of sexual connotation or is it more of like um, a Garden of Eden situation? Well, he's a, he's a botanist and he's working in the nude. So <laughs> but maybe they just don't have clothes. Yeah, I guess they're just, you know, they're free and easy up there. I feel like he doesn't have like a lot of like external bits that could get, you know, easily damaged when he's pollinating or whatever. I mean, maybe, you know, he is kind of oddly shaped where he does kind of like, you know, how he's kind of flat on the bottom. There could be something dangling down there between those <laughs> legs that we just don't see. Is it like a um, shape of water situation? I'm confident. Retractable. I'm, I, I believe it's a shape of water situation. Or he's just got a tiny little little thing dangling, dangling free like truck nuts. Um, you know, Tiff, that's a really important question. Does Alf have genitals? Is that is that canonically? Because if Alf has genitals, then we know that E.T. has genitals. Because I don't know. Did not you ever see Alf's racist, like but... bottom half? Are you positing that Alf and E.T. are the same species? <laughs> I'm not saying they're the same species. I'm just saying it's kind of like um, a hyena and a cheetah. You know, they're close <laughs> enough for me to feel comfortable in saying that they have the same situation going on there. Anyway, what this has to do with poltergeist is. <laughs> Well, anyway. Maybe the clown. Maybe the clown's got it, too. That's why Robbie's so scared of him. He's got a fucked up E.T. dick. I hate you! I hate you! You're a I hate you! I hate you! I hate you! So, after all of that back and forth, the mystique, the intrigue, the legal quandaries, uh, what kind of story we're left with is ultimately one about family. So the story begins with the Freelings, a family of five living a normal suburban life in a planned community called Cuesta Verde. In your usual ghost stories, you have a haunted mansion, uh, uh, creaking doors, uh, strange sounds, that kind of thing. But we wanted our setting to be very normal. And Stephen then set the story in a very normal, everyday situation. Steve Freeling is the father, and he works as a real estate developer, and his wife, Diana, looks after their three children, Dana, Ray, Robbie, and Caroline. I nearly call him Rabies. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, he's got, he's, he's got, he's got uh, teeth like, uh, um, what's that animal? Parrotfish? No. Um, a beaver? Beaver. Well, it builds a dam. It's got beaver too. Uh, and they're all living a, living a seemingly normal suburban life uh, until one night Caroline awakens to find the television on uh, transmitting static after the station sign-off, which we all noted is a very terrifying concept that television stations used to have bedtimes. Uh, also the fact they signed off by playing the national anthem. Weird. It used to scare the shit out of me, though. It's creepy. 
Yeah, I'm old enough to remember when that happened. Candace is not, which is a huge generation <laughs> yeah, gap with us. No memory of this. Uh, yeah, when I was a kid, that used to fuck me up. There's just something unwholesome about it. Yeah, and I mean, white noise is definitely creepier than what happens now when you lose signal. Now when you lose signal, it just like pixelates a bit and then says no signal. So, I mean, yeah. 90s kids forever, whatever. <laughs> she starts talking to voices that we can't hear um, through the television set. Uh, before she's pulled back to bed by her family. This happens again the next night and a ghostly and like it's when the two parents they're playing it as sort of these they're cool parents because the mother Diana is smoking marijuana and the father Steve Freeling is reading Reagan's biography and they're just sort of like they have probably one of the most healthy relationships put to film is specifically in the 80s for a married couple. Um, but also like ever but also like ever you it's rare to see a such a stable relationship that's you know they do actually seem like they like each other Hi. three meters Hi. your diving days are over we're talking olympics diane okay then let I me can, see your talk <laughs> we can jackknife into the swan <laughs> twist turn and Honey, it's right to the Nautilus machine. Where is honey? Before, after, before, <laughs> after, before, after. And I think the reason why this movie is so scary is because it threatens something in their lives that's very solid, which is this family bond, as opposed to a lot of other horror movies where it's like, the scary part is the fact that mom and dad should have gotten a divorce a long time ago. You know, like where it's like, kids, we're moving up to this shitty old house I bought in the woods and I'm going to get all mad all of a sudden. You know, that kind of Amityville horror thing. And what's scary about this movie, of course, is the idea that they do have what is a, per a pretty perfect, a pretty ideal family dynamic that all of a sudden is thrown into chaos. And it has to be an external factor. It's not something lurking within, which is like, cool but also most movies cannot pull off that kind of like literary depth <laughs> so it just ends up looking like two people who hate each other bickering yeah and it's like maybe one of you should be killed by a ghost so yeah this happens again after everyone sort of falls asleep carol ann is back in front of the television set and a ghostly hand comes out of the tv and reaches for her and this is followed by a really violent earthquake similar to the one candace experienced a few days ago and it's after this violent shaking stops and everybody in the house wakes up that Caroline turns around to the camera and says, they're here, which is one of the most iconic horror quotes ever committed to film. They're here. Uh, and it's from this point on that the Freelings experience bizarre phenomena occurring throughout their house um furniture moves spoons bend glasses break and they build up in their intensity and all of these small touches of the not quite ordinary are probably what is more scarier than anything 
that James Wan has ever done in his life. I say it every time, but those chairs stacking on the table, that is so scary to me. It's so creepy and like, you know, the things just being not quite right and Carol Ann always looking at the white noise on the TV. It's just something deeply unwholesome about it being so intrusive into like your home, which is like your safe space, but it's not like James Wan saying, oh, look, it's this scary doll that no one would want in their house. Oh, I put up my doll collection. Oh, my God. What is that? What? What is it? This doll looks like my mother. George, it's a doll. I know it's a doll, but it looks like my mother. The events build and build and build, and they culminate in this incredible sequence where there's a storm going on outside and the tree that is outside Robbie and Caroline's bedroom which Robbie has had mixed feelings about before this point reaches into his bedroom and drags him out of bed this is pretty fucking creepy I mean the hands are kind of dumb looking when they come in and get him but the concept itself really does play on that what's that branch hitting the window when you're a kid and you're like, oh my god, it's the end. Uh, and it's during this attempt to rescue him by the family that Carol Ann is spirited away and <laughs> her voice is transmitted through the TV while everyone is running around the house trying to find her. which is a really creepy and inventive concept. And if I saw it in a script sent to me by somebody else, I'd be like, yeah, I'll take that. I'll take it. <laughs> this also, I think, is where maybe, you know, if we're if we're playing devil's advocate here, the swamp, the swimming pool, kind of a bit of a crossover, you know. This is a really good use of, I think, like Chekhov's gun with, with the pool. Because you think this is when the pool is going to come into play. And really, truthfully, the pool does not come into play, obviously, until the third act. When she goes, the pool! Oh my god, the pool! And then he runs out, you know, Craig T's out there, and he, you know, he does his little dive, because earlier they've been having the conversation about, you know, you swan dive or whatever, now he dives into the, you know what I mean, and yeah. going around there, and he goes, Caroline's not in here, oh, Robbie's upstairs, mom, mom, mom! And then, anyway, whatever, and then, like, obviously at the end of the movie, the pool, spoiler alert, has... A more significant role, but I, I do love the way that's structured in particular. And that's a really simple thing, but um, people aren't good at making movies, so they don't do things like that. I think, yeah, a lot of what's in this film is very deliberate. Like, every everything that starts off in the beginning that's quite small amplifies into this kind of intense space at the end. Like, yeah, the diving board stuff and the talking about, like, when Steve is because he's a realtor, he's taking people around houses that are almost identical to his own and, you know, talking about the benefits of the land and everything. And then obviously that all comes back to quite literally haunt him. Yeah, I think it's all deliberate and I don't think that Steven Spielberg could have come up with that all on his own because it just seems too smart for one brain to sort of have worked that all out. And that's why there's three people on this podcast. <laughs> Equals one brain. Um. <laughs> so yeah caroline is spirited away and the freelings enlist the help of some parapsychologists from uc irvine to investigate and try and get caroline back 
so these are sort of the Zach Bagans ghost hunters who come in and do all of their little tests to try and see what's going on. And initially they're a bit skeptical of their claims, but it becomes very obvious very quickly that there is some kind of paranormal activity going on in the house. Objects are moving on their own. They can hear Carol Ann's voice coming through the television. And the paranormal investigators are a little bit out of their depth. I think they spend a night in the house, which is like, I would be getting the fuck out of that house, even if my kid was there. I'd not be sleeping there. But apparently the Freelings have been doing this for like two weeks, uh, sleeping in this house. And Craig T. Nelson, who plays Steve Freeling, looks really bad. Got these full-on smoky eyes, looking very downtrodden. And each of the paranormal investigators have their own experiences with the ghosts. There's the incident of the spectral light that they see coming down the stairs, which is this awesome matting effect that is kind of like Tiff likened it to the ghost of Christmas past in (laughs) Muppet's Christmas Carol. Uh, You know, that kind of underwater matting. So they've obviously captured something underwater with all the flowing and then matted it in. Like they can see that it's multiple ghosts. Uh, There's also another scene where one of the paranormal investigators is eating some chicken, which is really gross. He's just moving around the kitchen like he owns the place. He knows exactly where the pans are. It's weird. And then that happens earlier in the movie, right, when the, the workers are, are working on the swimming pool, and the one, Joe Beth Williams, who, who plays Mrs. Filling, catches one of the guys, like... Eating. Cl- from- eating out, yeah, from a... Sp- like from the the spoon in her like pot of whatever the hell she's making i don't know tomato bisque i don't know and it's just like and she's just like oh you and he just puts the spoon right back in fucking disgusting so we have coronavirus but like the steak on the bench starts you know doing all this gross stuff and then he goes into the bathroom and this is where one of the coolest effects happens in the film his face i don't explodes off his skull Anyway, he'll be uh, we'll be pumping goo yeah. after you start getting a major piece of face off. Right, right. Uh, we'll start with a little trickle when you when you rip this off. One guy will syringe that in okay. and get into that portion. Now you're going to find right. once the stuff is mm-hmm. heated, it's mm-hmm. very tender, and the flesh is going to roll and oh, melt good. under your hands. Good, that's the idea. Oh, oh, great. Good. It takes out everything in pieces. Plus, plus when you melt it, the surface will go like gummy, horrible. It's, it's disgusting. Oh, it's disgusting. Yeah. It's gross. It's really gross. But he, you know. It's just a vision. He's not really done that. And he decides to leave, which I think that would be my limit too. I'd be like, I can't do this anymore. But feeling that they're out of their depth, um, the paranormal investigators and the family enlist the help of a psychic medium called Tangina to try and get Caroline back. Do you mind hanging back? You're jamming my frequencies. Uh, and Tangina is played by Zelda Rubenstein. Tangina is, she gives the sort of creepiest monologue in the film, talking about how Carol Ann has been taken because of her living energy that the ghosts want because it's so different to what they have. And she says that Carol Ann is not alone in whatever realm that she's in, that the, the beast, it's called, is there with her. Um, and wants to, I guess, consume her. And it's uh, also the idea that it's it's presenting itself to her as a, as another child, which is crucial to how Carol Ann interacts with it. I, I really enjoy how the ghosts are presented as kind of this, like, obviously there's there's individual ghosts, but they're kind of still like this, like, 
spectral mass that are kind of indistinguishable from each other in terms of characteristics. Because in the script, it's like, there's an old woman, and there's an old man, and there's a little boy. and like. But I like the fact that these are all just kind of these really abstract, vaguely humanoid figures. I find that a lot more menacing than like concrete personalities. Yeah, and it's done in the way that like all of the 80s effects really help enhance it like you see that horrible like beast skeleton thing come out and roar and but you're not quite quite sure exactly what is going on and I mean things look a bit fake but I think that they look fake in a way that's you know cool because it's so stylized whereas now it would just be some old woman ghost you know whose eyes are black and she's got her head tilted and her boobs are down by her knees it's not (laughs) like it's more inventive and engaging Mm-hmm. The fact that it's really, like, non-specific. Uh, yeah, that it takes so yeah. many forms, too, I think. Like, it's not limited to one kind of thing. Like, it's this poltergeist activity, but then it's, like, this spectral light, and then... Especially because if you were to believe that there were some sort of being that could manipulate its appearance and its behavior to target you specifically and your home specifically, obviously it would take on whatever form it needed to, mm. you know? So this really simplistic modern horror idea that you could all the evil can be traced back to like one individual and like one particular individual's like misdeeds is like, you know, unless we're talking about like Edie, I mean, it doesn't really like work that way, <laughs> you know. So the, the idea that it's something that's so ineffable without really necessarily being like a religious concept, because like throughout the movie repeatedly, they address the idea, well, some people believe in heaven, but then other people believe in this light and I think without tying it into an explicitly religious context, again, it makes it even scarier. Because when they're told, oh, Carol Ann don't go into the light, or Carol Ann do go into the light, it's not like Carol Ann walk towards St. Peter's, you know, early mm. gates and meet Jesus, baby Jesus himself. It's like, what is this thing beyond? What is this this next realm? That, yeah. Uh, and, and I you like... understand why, why, the, why... Oh, sorry, I was to say, you understand why these spirits are so reluctant to move on to the next stage because it's presented not with the you know expectation of divine mercy or you know seeing every puppy you ever had in your life or whatever but as like (laughs) no one really knows what happens next so of course the ghost would be trepidatious about moving on because it's truly the unknown and i think in a way you also really begin to to empathize with the whole situation that's unfolding in the house and not merely siding with the family against this being but you you understand the being and it's just it's a really it's really i think interesting and dynamic horror narrative some people believe that when people die there's a wonderful light as bright as the sun but it doesn't hurt to look into it all the answers to all the questions that you ever want to know are inside that light and when you walk to it you become a part of it forever. And then some people die, but they they don't know that they've gone. You think they're still alive? Yeah. Maybe they didn't want to die. Maybe they weren't ready. Maybe they hadn't lived fully yet, or they'd lived a long, long time, but they still wanted more life. They resist going into that light however hard the light wants them. I like how we never see what Carol Ann is seeing. Like, we yeah. never, we, we don't see where she is. We're not seeing, you know, the upside down. Yeah. 
we know she's very vulnerable in this place, but we don't know what's going on. It's just that she's been there for a long time and she's all by herself. And that's very frightening. It really uses the, I don't want to say like lack of, it utilizes like what cannot be like visually presented to really great effect. Whereas like, again, like we keep saying, if you made this movie now, there would be that pressure to show the upside down, as it were. Whereas even with the upside down, the strange things was scariest when you didn't know what Will saw. And then once they start showing the mind flayer and stuff, it's like, well, now we know. The implicit's always scarier than the explicit, especially when it involves Alf's junk. But yeah, so under the guidance of Tangina, they devise a plan to try and get Carol Ann back, which involves someone going in into the spiritual dimension and getting her back through the gateway that is in Caroline's closet. Initially, Tangina says she's going to do it. And then Diane, the mother, is like, well, no, I should do it. You know, I, I know all this stuff. And and then um, Tangina's like, yeah, you should do it, uh, which I think is one of the... <laughs> Best parts in the movie. send Diane through and she gets Carol Ann and they come through this portal into another section of the house covered in this kind of spectral goo and a revived uh, and it's kind of like a false ending at this point where you think everything's sort of gone back to normal. The Freelings are moving out of the house. I don't know why you wouldn't move immediately. Send someone else in for your shit, but they don't. So... <laughs> They spend more nights in the house, and this is when the beast strikes again and tries to get Carol Ann. And the spectral activity goes, like, way up. This is when the clown attacks Robbie, which is, like, one, why the fuck do you have a clown doll like this in your house? It's so out of place with everything else inside that room because... Everything else in that room is Star Wars themed. Yeah. Well, they can't give Robbie a lot of conventional toys, you know, because anything with wood he'll use to, <laughs> to sharpen his teeth. <laughs> He's just gnawing on it, you know. While she's desperately trying to get to her two youngest children, Diane has to like run through the hallway, which she can't ever get to the end to, which is a really cool effect. The sort of big beast is trying so hard to get her, to get Carol Ann. It ends up with Diane in the pool, and this is really the third act that we were talking about, where the pool becomes the, I guess, main focus of the horror, where Diane is in the pool and bodies start rising from the ground. It's really creepy, um, especially because lots of these skeletons are like still adorned in like clothes and jewels and things. And their neighbors come and help Diane out of the pool. And she's like, you have to help me get my children. You have to help me get my children. And the neighbors just are like, we've done enough. And leave. <laughs> uh, but she uh, eventually manages to get Robbie and Carol Ann out of the house. And it's here where um, Steve Craig T. Nelson comes back and confronts his boss, accusing him of moving the cemetery that was where the development was moving the headstones, but not moving the bodies. You son of a bitch, you moved the cemetery, but you left the bodies, didn't you? You son of a bitch, you left the bodies and you only moved the headstones! You only moved the headstones! And 
is it yeah it's this point where the house sort of collapses in on itself it like is sucked into this central point and it's a really cool looking thing but the freelings get the fuck out of dodge they leave and move to a motel and that's kind of the end they just get out of there that's about it the tv gets thrown out of the hotel room because obviously you don't want that in there and like i said while we're watching it it's like if james wan were making this movie today it would be like and then like the tv would start like flickering yeah like oh sequel bait yeah I guess, fuck that. I mean, we should mention that there are two sequels to Poltergeist, but it was definitely not made with the intention that there would be sequels. Yeah, definitely very different kind of horror movie. So that was what we ended up with after all of that pre-production back and forth. And that sort of back and forth did not stop after that script was completed. So while Spielberg was to take on a producer role for this, by all accounts, he took a very active role in all aspects of the filmmaking, um, which led to many differing accounts as to who really directed this film. Toby Hooper insists that he directed the film and he is the one who has the credits. Um, However, at the time of shooting, rumours began to surface that perhaps this wasn't the case. On a set visit, the LA Times observed Spielberg actively directing scenes, um, specifically the ones involving the kids chasing the cyclists with his, like, slab of beer um, with the remote control car. Throughout his life, Hooper insisted that he did half the storyboards for the film himself. However, department heads have stated on the record that Spielberg would have the final creative decisions on everything and would often veto Hooper's decisions and replace them with his own ideas. Hooper believed it to be a collaborative relationship and stated as such upon the film's release to the LA Times. I always saw this film as a collaborative situation between my producer, my writer and myself. Two of those people were Steven Spielberg. But I directed the film, and I did fully half of the storyboards. I'm quite proud of what I did. I can't understand why I'm being slighted. I love the changes that were made from my cut. I worked for a very good producer who is also a great showman. I felt that was a plus, because Steven and I think in terms of the same visual style. Meanwhile, Spielberg summed up his involvement thus. Toby isn't what you'd call a take-charge sort of guy. He's just not a strong presence on a movie set. Jesus. If a question <laughs> if a question was asked and an answer wasn't immediately forthcoming, I'd jump up and say what we could do. Toby would nod in agreement, and that became the process of the collaboration. I did not want to direct the movie I had to do E.T. five weeks after principal photography on Poltergeist. So very different take on things. Cooper is like so graceful about it. And then Spielberg's just out there like throwing him under the bus. That's so shitty. Uh, Zelda Rubenstein, who was Tangina, stated that Spielberg directed all of her scenes and she said Toby set up the shots and Steven made the adjustments. She also postulated that Hooper's hands-off approach was due to unacceptable chemical agents. Uh, She's alleging that Toby was high as a kite and incapable of directing. But actor James Caron, who is Mr. Teague, he's uh, Craig T. Nelson's boss, refuted this, saying that she laid into Toby and I don't know why. Toby was kind to her. Uh, I will say that Zelda Rubenstein has been pretty outspoken about many things 
about the shooting of Poltergeist. I mean, I don't think it's fair to judge based on one actress's experience because she her shots were done in six days um, over the course of shooting, so obviously that's a very limited window. But first assistant camera director John R. Leonetti reported that Spielberg directed the film more so than Hooper, stating Hooper was so nice and just happy to be there. He creatively had input, Stephen developed the movie, and it was his to direct, except there was anticipation of a director's strike, so he was the producer. But really, he directed it in case there was going to be a strike, and Toby was cool with that. It wasn't anything against Toby. Every once in a while, he would actually leave the set and let Toby do a few things just because. But really, Stephen directed it. So that's pretty brutal. So in anticipation of a director's strike, he decides to helm the movie so that his director is rendered so incidental to the process that even if he walks off the set, nothing changes. Pretty much. That is a little Machiavellian. It's, it's really the long game, isn't it? Yeah. Wow. But there have been some people who have come to his defense. Upon Hooper's passing on August 27, 2017, which is my birthday, uh, directed Mark Garris, who was a publicist on the film and visited the set on several occasions, came to his defense on the post-mortem podcast. Uh, we don't cross-promote on this podcast, by the way. Um, yeah, only for the Denisons. Toby was always calling action and cut. Toby had been deeply involved in all of the pre-production and everything. But Stephen is a guy who will come in and call the shots. And so you're on your first studio film hired by Steven Spielberg, who is enthusiastically involved in this movie. Are you going to say, stop that, let me do this? Which Toby did. Toby was a terrific filmmaker. I don't think it's that Stephen was controlling. I think it was that Stephen was enthusiastic. And nobody nobody was there to protect Toby. But all of the pre-production was done by Toby. Toby was there throughout. Toby's vision is very much realized there. And Toby got credit because he deserved credit. Yes, Steven Spielberg was very much involved. It's a Toby Hooper film. So, I mean, it's not the most crazy defense of someone. They still say that Steven Spielberg was the one who was really calling all the shots. I would have to say that probably his involvement was... Not that of a typical director, purely because I think, yeah, Steven Spielberg is really into this production and that he had a lot of thoughts and ideas that he vetoed all in any others. And this theme of Hooper being undermined at every turn uh, carried on into post-production with members of the crew stating that Hooper delivered his cut of the film, uh, which was summarily rejected and that he was not involved at all in the scoring, sound mixing, or special effects. Spielberg, however, was very hands-on in all of these areas, including working directly with Jerry Goldsmith, who wrote the score. one of the few Spielberg films that does not have a score written by John Williams. And Spielberg was present every single day on the SFX photography at Industrial Light and Magic Studios. 
while Hooper was working on his first cut of the film that was rejected. It's hard to know the exact truth here. It's sort of shrouded in age and mystery, but I think, yeah, it really boils down to that Spielberg knew how he wanted this movie to be, and for all intents and purposes, he made his producer role make it happen, relegating Hooper to being more of an assistant. In terms of artistic credit, where does this leave us? Uh, I think there's a... People have speculated as to why Hooper was given directorial credit um, at all, if he didn't contribute as much as he should have. But the Directors Guild rules state that if a director is fired, they cannot be replaced by someone who was already on the film production before their firing. Uh, this means Spielberg could never have gotten a directorial credit, even if Toby Hooper had been fired. <gasps> the DGA strikes again. <laughs> Um, because of the rumours surrounding the credit were so prevalent, even before the film was released, the Directors Guild opened an investigation into the question of whether or not Hooper's official credit was being denigrated by statements Spielberg has made, apparently claiming authorship. Uh, the investigation ended in an arbitrage ruling the MGM United Artist Entertainment Company must pay $15,000 to director Toby Hooper because the studio gave producer Steven Spielberg bigger credit than Hooper got in its trailers. Although noting that broader issues of dispute exist between producer-writer Spielberg and the director, original damages of $200,000 were originally sought by the Directors Guild America. All of this culminated in Spielberg taking out a full-page ad in The Hollywood Reporter to apologise to Hooper and give him full directorial credit. Regrettably, some of the press has misunderstood the rather unique creative relationship which you and I shared throughout the making of Poltergeist. I enjoyed your openness in allowing me a wide berth for creative involvement, just as I know you were happy with the freedom you had to direct Poltergeist so wonderfully. Through the screenplay, you accepted a vision of this very intense movie from the start, and as the director, you delivered the goods. You performed responsibly and professionally throughout and I wish you great success for your next project. I can't wait till Steven Spielberg has to apologize to us in The Hollywood Reporter. <laughs> <laughs> that has a very, like, kiss the ring kind of yeah. tenor to it. The beginning of it is very like, well, I'm sorry if you think the press thinks that... Yeah, I'm sorry <laughs> if your feelings are hurt. You know, I think your comparison to Selznick is really apt. I, I kind of have always felt about Spielberg that he was a man out of time and not, like, in the way we usually use the phrase, I, he should have been born, like, 70 years prior so that he could be a studio mogul because I feel like that's kind of how he wants to make his movies. I think it was kind of an endemic attitude amongst directors of his generation to simultaneously kind of like denigrate the idea of the studio and the idea of studio production mentality while they themselves wanted to have the status of one of the great quasi-independent producers of the studio era. I think he really does want to be a Selznick. And maybe he doesn't anymore, but I think at that point in time, he definitely wanted to be Selznick. I think feel the same way about James Cameron. It's like when you look, it's like when you read about um, a classic example of Selznick meddling, like since you went away, for example, it's, it, this is the same behavior. It's such a, a pattern. And Selznick was able to behave that way because of who he was and the particular like labor context in which he operated. And you have this this kind of new Hollywood generation of directors. And I know a lot of people think, you know, Spielberg killed off the new Hollywood by bringing, you know, blockbusters back to the fore as opposed to kind of quirkier films, you know. And he will be punished in hell for that. But I think that they 
have a really complicated relationship with with labor and i think definitely subconsciously or otherwise kind of yearn for the era of studio filmmaking when if you were the name above the title you took responsibility for everything that happened on the film set the idea that a time when all credits were were collapsed under one name when there are about three credit screens and you have an art director you know you have a dialogue coach you've got the sound man and you got the dp and that's about it you know and i think a lot of directors really like that idea because it gives them a lot of leeway in terms of maybe taking credit for or making decisions uh, that maybe they're not entitled to make and that works in a studio environment because of how the studio is bankrolled how the studio is structured but that's not how a modern film set should work so spielberg to me has always kind of felt like a bit of an anachronism in that regard but directors are also megalomaniacs so i mean the very fact that he was working to undermine a potential union strike uh, <laughs> classic it's very like movie mogul um thinking and i think in the finished product you can see a lot more of his hand than toby hooper's because as you said it's very different to texas chainsaw massacre it's definitely more in uh, spielberg's wheelhouse than in hooper's and toby was also not afraid to get weird like i say toby like i know him personally but he <laughs> our was good not, friend our good friend he was not afraid to get weird in a way that spielberg never got weird when Spielberg got weird. It was like AI. It was AI. <laughs> it was not like Texas Chainsaw 2, you know, it was not Salem's Lot. It was not the fun house. That was not the kind of weird that Spielberg did. It was never like edgy. Spielberg is the least edgy person alive. No, he's a and normie. He's a normie. He's the ultimate normie. He's the ultimate norm court. That's him and fucking George Lucas walking around in probably the same pair of Wrangler's jeans that he's been wearing <laughs> since like 1978. And that's why I, I think that's probably the aspect of it that you can say conclusively brands this as a Spielberg uh, product and project as opposed to a Toby Hooper product and project is that it's not weird enough. It has no edge whatsoever. It's completely sanded off, just like Robbie's teeth. Leave that little boy alone. So in terms of casting for this movie, there isn't too much to report other than Joe Spano was originally cast to play family patriarch Steve Freeling, but he was starring in Hill Street Blues at the same time. And series creator Stephen Bocho, is it? I, I don't think know. it's Bochco. Bochco, I yeah. I was like, I, I read it and I'm like, that's not right. <laughs> um, wouldn't let him out of his contract. So instead, obviously, Craig T. Nelson was cast. I think in the pre-production notes that I read, both Hooper and Spielberg sort of wanted more unknown actors to play the Freelings because they didn't want any kind of celebrity colouring the audience's perception of the family. So I guess guess you could say that they did achieve that because I definitely don't have thoughts about Craig T. Nelson outside of this movie. (laughs) (laughs) Not bad for you. But obviously the most important role in this movie is that of Carol Ann. Initially Drew Barrymore was considered for the role of Carol Ann, but Steven Spielberg wanted somebody more angelic, which I I mean, I wouldn't say Barrymore is not angelic, but it would be her audition for this role that landed her the part of Gertie in E.T. The role eventually went to Heather O'Rourke, She was chosen for the film when she was eating lunch with her mother and sister at the MGM commissary. Uh, Steven Spielberg came up to them and wanted O'Rourke for the part of Carol Ann. 
She initially failed the screen test because she kept laughing her way through the audition, even when she was supposed to be afraid. Spielberg thought she was too young to take the part seriously, but he still recognised there was something special about her. So he asked her to come back for another audition, and this time to bring a scary storybook with her. He also asked her to scream, so she screamed and screamed until she started crying. This audition got her cast. I don't know, that feels not great to do to a child. Yeah, I don't love that. Um, I guess it's better than pulling the old Hollywood trick of, you know, telling them their puppy's been run over by a car. I mean, it's better than fucking what Friedkin allegedly did, so... (laughs) (laughs) Anything's better than what Friedkin allegedly did. I mean, with Friedkin, too, there was definitely a chance he could have, like, taken out his cap gun and just, like... (laughs) (laughs) You know, sometimes when you have a child actor, you have to pull, like, what they did with Natalie Wood in The Green Promise, where you have to tell them, the bridge is not going to collapse. It's a real bridge. And then you send them across a stud bridge and it collapses and they go falling into the water and they break their wrist so that their screams are genuine. Sometimes that's what you have to do because children can't act. And this is the funny thing about this is that whenever people are like, oh, all these horrible abuses in Hollywood, it's like everyone is willing to talk about exploitation of actresses by, you know, directors and producers or exploitations of extras or kind of young people hangers on in the industry who are of age but not quite mature by you know powerful people like the Kevin Spacey situation not that Kevin Spacey obviously you know didn't prey on younger people as well I want to clarify that I do know that but um, the idea that you can just send a small child into a professional working environment that most of the time is not treated as a professional working environment, but as basically like a meat market is so fucked up. You know, Mm -hmm. the stories that you hear about the way that kids are treated on sets is like, you know, Tiff mentioned in a previous episode, Shirley Temple being, you know, locked in a box during baby burlesques, you know, as punishment. And like, that's the kind of, that's kind of a a classic way of, of treating kids in the industry. I think I might've mentioned this before, but my mom was a, was a page and you know, like Kenneth on 30 rock. And she worked on different strokes and she saw grown men playing poker with Gary Coleman and like taking his money, beating a child at poker while he's like hooked up effectively to his like dialysis machine. And like that was the 1980s as well. And so every time I'm just like, hmm, that's a that's a strange in- environment for a child to be in. I'm like, oh, right. The whole thing is completely unnatural for a child to be in. Yeah. Yeah, which is why I'm, like, cool with, like, 30-year-olds playing teens in fucking Riverdale or whatever it is. I mean, I don't watch Riverdale. I have no idea what it is. But, like, I prefer fully grown adults to be in this situation than children. Yeah, it's like you wouldn't put a kid in a coal mine, but you're willing to send a kid into an environment where they're surrounded by predominantly adult men. And we know that this is being abused when it comes to grown women and grown men who at least can advocate for themselves, but we're surprised when horrible things happen in the industry to children. I don't know, Uh, you know. It just seems like a lot of, like, "Mm, don't question that. Better ignore that. People are concerned about bears dancing in the circus, but not about, like, you know, little kids having private meetings with famous directors. I don't know. Uh, The cast is uh, round out by Jo Beth Williams as Diane, Dominique Dunn as the teenage daughter Dana, Oliver Robbins as Robbie Freeland, Freeling, uh, James Karen as Mr. Teague, who is the boss who does not move the bodies, uh, Zelda Rubenstein as Tangina, and Beatrice Strait as Dr. Leash, the paranormal investigator. 
There's nothing really else to say about the cast, as it were, until we get a bit later on. I think what's more impressive in terms of filmmaking is the special effects. They really are what makes or breaks this movie uh, in terms of its longevity. As I mentioned before, Spielberg oversaw a lot of the development of the effects at the ILM studios, and he was particularly exacting about how effects should be used and how they should look on film to, like, an obsessive degree. Nearly every single scene in this movie features some kind of special effect, including the demonic tree, the ghostly dimensional portal, the skeletons rising from the grave. There's a whole lot of different matting that goes on. Even in scenes before, like a lot of the spookier events happen, you see a lot of the storm clouds coming over the um, development. And I think that these effects littered throughout have a different, a differing feeling of reality. So in the beginning, all the effects are quite low-key practical effects that sort of amp up into something that's completely outside of your human experience. There is a rumor that surrounds one of the biggest effects in this movie, which is the corpses rising from the bottom of the pool, sort of like out of their caskets. Uh, And the rumor is that they used real skeletons because Creating their own would have been too expensive. Um, (laughs) There's been a lot of, like, I did a lot of research into whether or not this was true. Some members of the crew maintain that it was true because it was cheaper. Some refute it. But I did find this extract from an interview with one of the makeup artists. I think he was the lead uh, makeup artist who was tasked with creating the corpses. Well, I'll just read what he has to say. Um, So the interviewer asks, let's begin with the corpses. Can you describe for me the procedure that you used in working on the corpses on Poltergeist? Because of the time constraints and because of budget limitations, it wasn't possible to approach the corpses as sculpted and then cast into rubber rubber and assembled. We had to work directly on skeletons. 13 skeletons were brought in from South Carolina and we worked directly on those by a process of what's now known as wet foam sculpture. And this was the first time that it had ever been done. And it was this process that made it possible to actually get the corpses done in time. Some corpses were sent down from ILM and they just weren't adequate for what was required. And also the cat skeleton was done in the same way. So... The initial rumour was that the skeletons were from India. That's a big jump from South Carolina. Um, And in the uh, Shudder documentary, they do bring up this rumour and they talk to Craig Reardon, who was a special effects makeup artist for Poltergeist. Apparently there's a contingent of people out there who uh, believe that the fact that uh, real human skeletons were used are some kind of pretext to explain, air quotes, why uh, two actresses that worked in the film subsequently died, which is not only uh, just conceptually ridiculous, but uh, is personally offensive to me. Here's something I guess they don't know, and that's the fact that human skeletons have been used in movies for years and years. William Castle, who's kind of a beloved figure, well, he makes a movie called House on Haunted Hill, and at the end of that movie, uh, Vincent Price makes a a skeleton emerge from a vat of supposedly acid. The skeleton wobbles toward his virago of a wife. Well, I was a real skeleton too. 
was a skeleton rigged up as a marionette. There's a scene at the beginning of the 1931 movie Frankenstein where Fritz the Hunchback runs into a skeleton. I mean, you know, I hate to disillusion you. Those were real human skeletons because no low-budget B-film is going to pay anybody to sculpt a human skeleton when all you had to do was go to a biological supply house and get a human skeleton. You know, wake up and smell the budget. That's really the way it worked. But I assume they were the articulated medical type of skeleton that we're looking to have Mickey Rooney transformed into. <laughs> so that was fucked up. Um, I, I gotta say, when you brought this up, I laughed because it seemed so absurd to me that actual skeletons would be cheaper than prop skeletons. But all right, I guess I'm not an expert on that subject. Um, yeah, you obviously don't know how much a skeleton costs. <laughs> I mean, we know that disinterment is a business. We do know that these things are done. And I would never put anything past MGM. No. <laughs> so. To save a buck? No way! <laughs> I mean, the way that, you know, like, what's the Errol Flynn movie where they just ride the horses off the cliff? I mean, that was obviously not MGM, but you know what I mean? Warner Brothers, but where they just, the horses just get flung off a cliff. And that, you know, was the beginning of actual oversight regarding the use of animals on film. I mean, it's a very, very dicey, you know, kind of back to, I always think of, you know, the belief that multiple people were probably killed during the filming of Ben-Hur 1925. Probably. You know, we do have eyewitness accounts of people drowning. Life is cheap in Hollywood. Yeah. You know? I mean, the the South Carolina thing really throws me because the idea of cheap skeletons being brought in from the global South is like, okay, that makes perfect sense. Like, did you guys ever have the bodies exhibits? Uh, the body world thing? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, those are like Chinese political prisoners, yeah. right? That they skin for the amusement and, 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 and twist into the position like, you know, like they're, like they're DJing, you know, at a party or whatever. <laughs> For the amusement of, like, fourth graders on field trips. Like, that's that's ghoulish and fucked up. And that's happening, you know, that was... I mean, there used to be articulated time. real human skeletons in classrooms. My mom, because I always had to bring... My mom did everything. She did, did all sorts of weird shit with props. And she had a gig briefly, I think, after the summer or whatever, after she graduated from college, with a couple friends of hers basically articulating skeletons for um, classrooms. And they were told... Oh, these are cast. These are not real bones. But one of her friends was uh, had been a science major and stuff, and he's like, "These are real human bones." <laughs> <laughs> I mean, and also in LA, you're constantly finding. You know, they're digging up forgotten cemeteries every like ten seconds. They dug up one that was a, uh, a cemetery um, of Chinese uh, miners, I think, or railroad workers, when they were building the gold line a couple years ago. They uncovered a huge Native American graveyard in downtown L.A. below a parking lot not too long ago. You know, this kind of stuff is always happening. And you know what? Someone's like, found this weird family plot in my new house in South Carolina. How can I make a buck off this? People go into tombs just to steal jewelry. Why not get rid of the actual skeleton while you're at it? And I hope you guys are taking notes. About what you want to happen to you? No, about what we're going to do for wrong. Oh. <laughs> I thought you were like, I want to be an articulated skeleton. No, I absolutely. That's something my mom always tells me that she wants to be cremated because she doesn't want to end up hanging in a junior high classroom with a fed on. And 
that's what's gonna happen to rock i'm not gonna let that happen to rock but like that could have happened to rock but the thing is is that what you guys really need to appreciate is that he is really like he is inlaid behind marvel so get through marvel I don't know why you think it's some kind of impenetrable... Yeah, but, like, how? Like, are you going to be, like, Michelangelo out there, you know, with your little, uh... Chisel? No, a pickaxe. Are you going to bring a power tool? How are you getting a pickaxe into a cemetery? I've never bought a jackhammer, but I imagine it's not that hard. What, do they strip-search you on the way in? Like, what? Who's going to strip-search me going into Hollywood forever? Well, the problem is that he's um, outside, so you are kind of like in broad daylight. He's not tucked away in any of the mausoleums, like you know. Clifton I mean, have Web you seen Ghostbusters too? Yes. <laughs> we just dress up as like workmen. Say, oh True. yeah, we're just like getting this plot ready for Ray Romano or whatever, and <laughs> <laughs> we're <laughs> so we've all got like mustaches on. I'm guessing yeah. they're all dressed like Italian plumbers. <laughs> you know, I'm just going to say, if I've got a jackhammer and I'm using it, no one's going to fucking try to tackle me because I turn around yeah. and there's a jackhammer in you your eye. You turn the jackhammer on them. Yeah. Like... Well, people would definitely stop and watch because they'd be like, <laughs> <laughs> what's that child doing? <laughs> Fuck off. They'd be like, oh my God, there's an 11 year old excavating graves. <laughs> No, it they'll see the two of you together and they'll be like, wow, it's the new Laurel and Hardy. <laughs> and like, <laughs> they'll think some kind of like. that I'm a Zaftig individual with a little mustache? Whereas I, of normal size, sort of am a normal person. Well, that's but... why we can stand and it'll be like the singular bars, you know? It'll kind of go up the three of us in a row and it, it'll be big and logical progression. And then, you know, that will make so much aesthetic sense to the eye that people will just immediately turn around and walk away anyway um stealing bones is really easy as we learn from the bone theft controversies on tumblr you might remember that hurricane katrina just sent coffins careening through the streets of new orleans like you know if you if you want to get a skeleton and put it in a movie it's probably fairly easy to do Honestly, they they were lucky to be in Poltergeist, all those dead people. So in terms of the other effects in the film, some of the smaller ones, like the crawling stake and the like chairs moving, uh, were done with wires and, you know, hidden cuts in the set because the set itself, like the exterior of the Freeling home exists. It's a real house. It's in Simi Valley, but it was recreated on the soundstage, every single room. You look at the set and you say, oh, it's a typical suburban household. Why don't you just go out to Simi Valley and shoot the interiors as well as the exteriors? Based on the uh, number of effects, you'll see why we had to go to Hollywood and shoot the old-fashioned way. We had lots of shots involving complicated setups for stunts and effects. And you just can't go into somebody's living room and tear out the ceiling and tear out the floor to accommodate them. But the biggest effect in the movie, um, which Frank Marshall dubbed as the $250,000 sentence in the script, and the house implodes. Um, So this refers to the scene at the end of the film where the Freeling home essentially collapses in on itself and disappears. Spielberg laid out the challenge to Richard Edlund at ILM, who coincidentally, I think, did the special effects on Air Force One. I know because I watched that film the other night and I saw his name in the credits (laughs) after doing the research for this. I was like, huh? (laughs) 
And they responded with zeal. Um, so to get the real effect of an implosion and not just having the house sort of collapse in on itself, months were spent testing to achieve the desired effect. Eventually, the team developed a rigged model of the Freeling home that was set on steel cables and that extended into a funnel-like construction with a vacuum system ready to get any dust and debris um, not pulled through by the cables. It was shot on high-speed film and then slowed down, with the actors shooting their part against a blue screen and being rotoscoped into the miniature model shoot. Another key effect is the huge spectral portal in Caroline's bedroom, called The Throat. Um, this was another miniature that was filmed separately and later combined with the live-action footage. On the special effects for the film, Richard Edland said that the most difficult one to achieve was the scene where the paranormal investigators go into Carol Ann's room and see the objects floating around the room. You see sort of the lamp stand go into the lampshade and turn on. You see all the toys flying around. Edlin said that this was the most difficult matting sequence he'd ever worked on, and there was a lot of back and forth with the optics and the optical printer to get the right look. The film, I mean, this scene, they still look fake as shit. <laughs> yeah. Um, floating in front of them. <laughs> But I think it's a very admirable attempt yeah, yeah, at a time sure. before they had CGI. <laughs> but I think that where the real strengths are is where the practical effects are used. As we said earlier, the chairs moving is so subtle and yet so creepy. I mean, even the cheesy kind of spectral light and skeleton things that you see are cool because they're stylized in a way that they're cool. One of the interesting aspects that came out of the lawsuit that Clemens and Yellen laid against Spielberg for stealing his script was that of the face ripping scene. Clemens said that he, Spielberg, had stolen the scene from their script, from the housebound treatment, but as can be seen in the 1985 deposition transcript, uh, we find that the makeup artist Michael McCracken actually came up with the face ripping idea on the set on his own, and it wasn't even in the Spielberg script. So, I mean, it's interesting to see like these kinds of ideas can just come up quite organically, even if they are similar in nature. I think purely by virtue of the kind of movie that it was. And that's what I have on the special effects. I do have some fun facts for you. Oh, yeah. Um, so this one, I had always wondered why it happened uh, in the movie because it just feel everything else in the movie feels really considered. Every bit of pacing is, like, done perfectly, but there's one jump cut scene that just feels really odd, uh, and it's when um, Stephen gets home from work after Diane discovers the sort of initial part of poltergeist activity with the sliding Carol Ann on the floor in the kitchen. And she's talking to Stephen, like, really fast-paced, and it just sort of cuts to them mid-sentence, like, being on their neighbour's doorstep, asking them whether they'd experienced any kind of weirdness. Okay. Mother okay. didn't cook any dinner. Well, go to Pizza Hut, okay? Honey, could you move the chair out of the way? And just stay down there. Come on, baby, let's show Daddy. I'm hungry. Now, don't argue with Mommy. Come on. Come on, let's just do this one. Okay, here we go. I want pepperoni pizza. Mommy, that's burnt. Oh, sweet. 
sweetie, I'm sorry. The phone needs more wax. Stephen, come on, you do it. Oh. Oh, come on, honey, try. Uh-huh. It's like, it's like there's this tickling, you know, right in here, and, then, and it starts to pull you. The tickling pulls you. And all of a sudden, it's like there's no air, except that you can breathe. And, and you're getting pulled along, and then maybe... Oh. Hi, Ben. Oh, Mr. Taylor. Look, my TV's not on, so oh, no. you're having problems. No, 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 no. Ben, it's nothing like that. Uh, uh, Diane and I were just wondering, uh, this is going to sound strange coming from me. Uh, about that. Apparently, the reason for this cut was because in the original scene, Stephen says how he hates Pizza Hut. Oh, God. And the scene was edited <gasps> after Pizza Hut took offense. Oh, my God. No oh, way. My God. Which I buy. <laughs> wow that's like is it um the sylvester stallone movie where they had to change all the references from pizza hut to taco bell demolition man <laughs> i always wondered why it is sort of cuts and that is like the oddest explanation for it but i also have this fact that might answer a little bit more about like what exactly dana freeling's role is because as we noted before, it's a bit weird that she's there and then she's not present for most of the movie or she has very little to do in the scenes that she is present for. Mm-hmm. I think I think that um, it's odd because she's so much older than the other kids um, and it kind of suggests that perhaps there was a teen mother Yeah, like her, situation. her presence requires them to kind of like dance around the fact that uh, Diana is meant to be 32 and so they have to like acknowledge that she was so young and it's like why did they even bother putting in this much older daughter so yeah a lot of people interpret it that way um however in the novelization of the film uh they clarify that diane is steve's second wife and that dana is actually diane's stepdaughter oh i don't know i don't know if i like i mean it's not implicitly said in the movie and the novelization obviously came after the movie um, but it, so it is a post-rationalization, if anything. Weird. But it's also um, why was that not addressed? If that was the case, but it's also important to note that both Craig T. Nelson and Joe Beth Williams were fifteen and eleven years older than Dominique Dunn, so they Even couldn't so, yeah, have <laughs> been their parents. Yeah, I'm like Craig T. Nelson is not that old. I mean, you know, a lot of times the novelization is like completely independently of like yes. anyone. Like I know that like. Paul Monette, who was a poet, wrote the novelization of one of the Alien movies. Like, probably never even saw the Alien movie, but you just get hired to do them. Yeah. Um, so I wouldn't be surprised if absolutely, like, the person who was doing that novelization saw the movie, they're like, that's fucking weird. I'm going to explain this. Yeah. This bothers me. <laughs> I mean, another explanation is that they wanted to have a sense of connection between the the age of the parents and the age of the children so that they weren't that far apart, like, generationally. So adding that sort of middle age mm-hmm. level sort of connected them a bit more. I don't know if I buy that, but it, it would definitely make more sense if she was the stepdaughter because, yeah, it just doesn't – I just don't vibe. Another fun fact is that we noticed when we were watching it that at the end of the film, the sign at the Holiday Inn, the Freelings Flee To says, Welcome, Dr. Fantasy and Friends. Uh, Dr. Fantasy is the nickname of producer Frank Marshall, which Ah, is a creepy nickname. That is a very creepy nickname. And also, I did see this, and I guess it's just trying to, like, tie in with previous episodes of this podcast, but it's the (laughs) first and only film produced by Steven Spielberg. Spielberg was an executive producer on Back to the Future trilogy and The Money Pit. Of course. So... (laughs) (laughs) 
Um, <laughs> I saw that. I was like, well, I have to now. <laughs> did Spielberg try to take uh, responsibility for everything Richard Benjamin did on the Money Pit too? I'm, I'm pretty sure he's the one who suggested Tom Hanks wear all those shorts. I, yeah, I can't see Richard Benjamin doing that. Yeah. Yeah. So. <laughs> So I mentioned at the top of the episode that unlike its contemporary The Thing, Poltergeist is its opposite, and it's the same when it comes to the reception the film received. So obviously The Thing was much maligned um, and didn't really find its audience for a long time, whereas Poltergeist was a critical and commercial success. Um, It was... The highest grossing horror film for 1982 and the eighth most successful film in general are pulling in $76.5 million at the box office. And it was praised for its story and the relationships between characters as well as the prodigious technical effects. So really in every way it's the thing's opposite which was criticised for the relationship between its characters and really criticised for the horror and gore of its effects. Uh, It was so popular that it spawned two sequels, Poltergeist 2, The Other Side, and Poltergeist 3, which don't really have the same pizzazz or, um, I guess, good storytelling of the first. And it was also remade in 2015 in a more technology-focused interpretation, which which we watched and it sucked. I barely Um, remember it. I literally was going to say, I don't think I watched that. I think it was Maybe just me I and did. Tiff, but it okay, was... Okay, well, then I'll be why. <laughs> I was like, I don't remember this movie. Yeah, I don't yeah. I don't think it was very good. I think that they tried to crowbar the technology angle into it too hard um, to give it sort of this point of difference, but, like, yeah, it sucked. <laughs> uh, and apparently, before Corona, they were attempting to remake it again with the Russo... Is it Russo Brothers? Russo, Russo Brothers? I think. Don't care about them. <laughs> um, which, enough... <laughs> they like do Avengers shit or something. I don't know. I don't think yeah. that they're, they they're should... the ones who were criticized for the fact that the Avengers movies are so aggressively heterosexual, and then they included a cameo by one of the Russo brothers in like some sort of like support group, like crying to Captain America that like his boyfriend got like turned to soup or whatever. I don't know. I don't watch that shit. I don't do comic book stuff. Um, but that does not bode well. I don't understand this this constant thing where it's like, if I were a Hollywood power player, after I've done all my weird pet projects, right, you know, including stealing Mickey Rooney's bones, I would not, if I wanted to remake something, I would try and remake something that maybe was like not well executed to begin with. I don't understand this constant compulsion to remake a movie that is universally beloved. Like, it doesn't work. No, and you can never recapture the magic. And I don't know why you'd even try. Army Hammer, Rebecca remake. I mean, what was it, This that screenshot that you sent us the other day, Tiff, of, like, they'd remade something and just it was ten times worse than the original? Oh, 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 um, fuck, uh, nun movie, nuns, um. Nuns? (laughs) Nun movie, uh, Black narcissist. Yes. Yes. Black narcissist. Black narcissist. <laughs> Black narcissist. Deborah Carr. Deborah Carr going bash a crazy movie. <laughs> yeah, they uh, they remade that for FX and it looks awful. Or this fucking nurse ratchet prequel series that went out. <laughs> My dad for. saw that in the paper and he he's like he'd heard the name Ratchet before, but he had no idea what it was about. And then yesterday he was like reading and he's like, oh, so that show's about nurse ratchet. <laughs> 
I was like, what did you think it was about? And he's like, I don't know. I just didn't question it. I was like, okay. That's a, that's a level of innocence that I would like to, like to possess. No, I, I don't I don't get it. I think you should remake something shitty, you know, like... Like, I think, like, like we're going to remake Hot Rods to Hell. Exactly. <laughs> it's like when... What's that stupid asshole who remade House... Um, the Haunting? Who remade The Haunting? Robert Zemeckis? Robert Zemeckis. It's stupid asshole Robert Zemeckis remaking The Haunting. Like, there's nothing wrong with The Haunting. There's no reason to remake that movie, you know? Well, I think... Robert Zemeckis did a lot of weird things in the 90s when it came to ghost movies. He, like, did all... He, like, did 13 Ghosts and, like... House of Wax, I think. Oh, what was the other one? Yeah. A he bunch did, of remakes that didn't need to happen, yeah. He did a bunch of them, and they're the most weird thing I've ever seen. Like, really strange. I don't know why he did... I think he just wanted to do it, and it's, like, some things you should not be allowed to do. I know. I feel like that's part of the problem now, is that there isn't, like, an executive board. Like, people complain about the suits in Hollywood, and, like, they do suck. And they suck ass. But sometimes you need people to tell you no, you know? And I feel like we're at this weird, weird cultural moment where no one is saying no. Maybe it's because there's so much Netflix money out there or whatever. But every stupid asshole who's tangentially related via nepotism to the industry is getting something greenlit. And it's like, none of this shit should exist. It's like none the, of these things should be produced. The, the turning. That yeah, yeah. Adaptation example. of the turn of the screw. Um, and it was Speaking just... of Deborah Carr going batshit crazy, we already have that, and it's yeah, fine. It's already and... done. We've got one. It's good. We don't need another. I don't understand it. The Rebecca thing was especially egregious, because I understand that Rebecca is also a standalone work outside of Well, and so know, is the, the turn of the screw, film. but it's like, once you have a, like, consummate performance... Yes. Of and that. thinking you can out-direct Hitchcock is just so arrogant. There, it, look, oh god, or my favorite, Kenneth Branagh's Terrible, terrible Christie's. I mean, I recently rewatched the original Murder on the Orient Express, and such a deftly handled ensemble cast. Beautiful performances from everyone. And no matter how many times you see it, it's still fresh. It's it's still surprising, and it's it's still a real like visual delight. And he took everything that you love and cherish about Agatha Christie, and he turned it into the worst like. Imagine Dragons, Coldplay, like mall music playlist mashup bullshit for like 14 year old boys who drink too much Mountain Dew Code Red and play Call of Duty. And that's what that movie is. Kenneth Branagh, this goes back to my idea. I think that Kenneth Branagh, secretly, the real creative force behind him was Emma Thompson. Because when you look at the, when they got divorced, his movies went downhill, like precipitously so i think maybe she was you know the hand that rocks the cradle in the background because i don't think it's a coincidence that somebody could go from making such wonderful literate elegant movies to making absolute horse shit like he's putting out now even better he has some sort of brain virus just eating too much licorice huh (laughs) well i guess that brings us to the curse of poltergeist as I said earlier, uh, this is the content warning section. Um, so if you don't want to listen to it, stop listening now and just, you know, thanks for listening. But um, as with our previous Halloween canon, which has only been one film at this point, <laughs> um, the Poltergeist movie does have this sort of curse lore surrounding it. Now, as mentioned before, 
a lot of this is spawned from the fact that they used real skeletons in the shooting. There were a few incidents on set that happened during filming, um, one of them being when Robbie um, is being strangled by the clown's arms. Apparently when they were shooting this, the arms became extremely tight and Robin's uh, Oliver Robbins, who plays him, started to choke. When he screamed out, I can't breathe, director Steven Spielberg and Toby Hooper thought that the boy was ad-libbing and just instructed him to look at the camera. Uh, it was only when his face started turning purple um, that Spielberg ran over and removed the clown's arms from his neck, which is like great way to Why treat a child on set. didn't he... <laughs> chew his way through that fucking that happened on the exorcist too i forgot to mention it but like when the when uh reagan's like thrashing back and forth she was in so much pain and she's screaming stop stop but that's like also the dialogue so they just keep fucking going and like i feel like like they should have a safe word perhaps that they can call out yeah jesus or just don't put kids in these situations in the first place you know another experience uh joe beth williams had supernatural experiences during the making of the film uh, whenever she came home from filming the pictures on her on the walls of her house were crooked and every time she fixed them they would go crooked again which i mean it's not really that paranormal i mean if it's la it could just be earthquakes <laughs> it could also be me living in her house <laughs> love joe beth williams um and zelda rubenstein also had an experience when a vision of her dog came to her and said goodbye hours later her mother called her and told her that her dog had passed away which is creepy but also zelda rubenstein did claim to be psychic before this that some people think that's why she was cast in this movie i don't believe in psychics I don't believe in any of that. I think maybe she could have just been missing her dog and dreamt of it. But that's pretty much it when it came to onset. So not really a lot of creepy activity, at least not enough to constitute the idea that a curse exists. Uh, what does, though, is the string of tragic deaths that are connected to the movie. Um, I won't go into too much detail on these because some of them are particularly brutal. But in terms of the death curse around poltergeist it begins with the death of dominique dunn who plays the eldest daughter dana she died shortly after the release of the film after her abusive ex-boyfriend strangled her in the driveway of her west hollywood home she died in the hospital five days after the assault and was taken off life support probably the greatest the greatest injustice of this story is the fact that when her ex-boyfriend was arrested um, he was arrested almost immediately and he was only convicted of voluntary manslaughter and only served six years for what essentially was murder in broad daylight. Her father, esteemed journalist Dominic Dunn of Vanity Fair, has been very outspoken since that point um, about what he considers to be a miscarriage of justice and both her parents were heavily involved in the area of victims' rights and advocacy for victims' families. Also, it's weird because Dominic Dunn was really involved in the O.J. Simpson trial. That's largely how I know him. Um, and apparently Dominic Dunn did, like, pursue the ex-boyfriend even after his release for, like, a long time, just being aware of where he was the whole time so yeah the the original vanity fair article that he did about the like immediate couple like days and weeks after dominique's death they're really hard it's really hard to read and the fact that always stuck with me is when he says that um lenny dominique's mother who made a previous appearance in the boys in the band episode because she's the one who got the rebecca de winter pillow 
she wanted Dominique's funeral to be held at this Catholic church in Beverly Hills that Dominique had attended as a child, but there was a wedding scheduled for that particular morning, and um, the priest asked this couple if they would move their wedding up by an hour so that this funeral could occur, and they were like, no, it's our special day. Jesus Christ. <laughs> it's our special day, which is like a very L.A. thing. The string of deaths don't stop there, unfortunately. The next death is that of Julian Beck, who played the apocalyptic preacher Kane in Poltergeist 2. He died of stomach cancer before the film was released in 1985. In terms of the curse, he did have stomach cancer before he took on the role, so, I mean, I don't know how much you can claim this on the curse. The next is that of Will Sampson, who played Taylor, the Native American shaman in Poltergeist 2. Um, he died of complications due to a heart-lung transplant in 1987. Uh, I mean, it is a very high-risk surgery that has a very small possibility of success, so it's not, like, the craziest thing to happen, but it is still very sad. But the most notable death uh, in the series is that of the star Heather O'Rourke, our Carol Ann. She had reprised her roles in both sequels, but during the filming of the third film, she collapsed and was rushed to hospital. En route to hospital, she suffered a cardiac arrest, but paramedics were able to restart her heart, um, and she was subsequently flown to the Children's Hospital of San Diego, where it was discovered she had intestinal stenosis and went into emergency surgery. She survived the surgery, but suffered another cardiac arrest whilst being transferred to the recovery room. Doctors performed CPR for 30 minutes, but... At 12.43pm, O'Rourke was pronounced dead. Um, it was later said that O'Rourke's cause of death was congenital stenosis of the intestine, which was complicated by septic shock. So she was 12 years old when she died. And they had finished principal filming on Poltergeist 3, but the studio execs said that they had to reshoot the ending because it wasn't any good. Initially, the director did not want to. Um, he said, we should just scrap the whole movie. Like, how can we go out with it when the star died? But uh, the ghouls at MGM demanded that they film it and that they use a body double. Um, and you can see this in the last film in the scenes that they've used the double. You don't see Carol Ann's face. We just decided in that room that day, the day before the funeral, that we were not going to finish the film. Film's over. I can't go back into the cutting room or watch this film with this dead 11-year-old in it. Afterwards, the, the board at MGM just said to us, you're going to finish the film. We got a lot of money invested in the film. You're going to finish the film. So they said, you'll have to come up and do an ending that won't involve Heather. So we came up with the idea for the stupid ending that's on the film now and used the double for Heather. That was the creepiest thing I've ever gone through in my life. Having this little girl dressed up as Heather, keeping her face away from camera. I really just did not want to finish the film. None of us would go along with the studio and, and do any publicity for the release of the movie. None of us wanted the movie released, and uh, but it was. I don't think any of us thought finishing the film would be a memorial to Heather. 
The only thing we did was uh, at the end of the film, there is a single card that says in memoriam to Heather O'Rourke, which just makes it sadder. <laughs> this whole thing is very Gene Harlow, Saratoga, which yeah. again, MGM. Yeah, um, a lot of comparisons can be drawn because she had been being treated for Crohn's disease because that's what she had been misdiagnosed with. Um, but it was just something else entirely that unfortunately was not caught in time. One of the more recent additions to the curse law is that of Lou Perryman. He played Pugsley in the original film, Poltergeist. And he was murdered in 2003 in his home by an ex-convict with an axe. So that's... Jesus. Horrific. And a near miss is that of Richard Lawson, who played Ryan, who's one of the paranormal investigators. Um, he was on US Air Flight 405, which crashed into Flushing Bay in 1992. He was one of the 24 people to survive. That's all the tragedy that surrounds... Well, that's all the law that surrounds it. I, I mean, I don't pay any mind to curses. I don't think that they're real things. Um, and I think it's a bit of a disservice, especially in this, this instance, because, you know, the death of Dominic Dunn is really indicative of a culture of violence against women and domestic violence. Um, and to chalk it up to a curse is a really big disservice to her memory. And, and it's the same with Heather O'Rourke because, you know, she was, she was just a kid. And um, misdiagnosis is a terrible thing. I think that it's pretty much a courtesy to put to an end this uh, superstitious um, crap. It's an insult to the memory of uh, a very sweet little girl, Heather O'Rourke. And uh, it's worse than that to Dominique Dunn, who was strangled to death by her boyfriend, which had fuck all to do with a skeleton. And another fact is, yes, there was a direct TV commercial in 2008 uh, that parodied the film. Craig T. Nelson reprised his role of Steve Freeling, complaining to Carol Ann and the audience that the static on the TV set is just bad cable reception and quick, not getting rid of that cable, that's going to come back to haunt me. They're here. No, honey, they're not here. We uh, forgot to switch to DirecTV. So instead of watching our favorite channels in HD, we're stuck watching cable. Forgetting to switch to DirecTV? Yeah, that's going to come back to haunt me. Get three times more HD channels than cable. Call 1-800-DIRECTV. Heather O'Rourke's family were apparently pleased with the ad for keeping her memory alive. So, I mean, I, if her family's okay, I guess it's okay, but it's also... A bit weird for a direct TV commercial. <laughs> I really enjoy this movie. I think it functions on a number of levels that a lot of ghost stories really do not. And that I think it's really uh, against type for it, you know, as Kansas said earlier, for it to be such a functional, healthy family relationship. And that all of the forces that interrupt that are external. And it's really that functioning family dynamic that gets them through it. Uh, it's refreshing, obviously it does smack of Spielberg's brand of storytelling, but I mean, it works. Uh, and I think all of the effects are pretty cool. And there's some funny moments in it too. Like when Tangina says, this house is clean. This house is clean. Mm -hmm. 
and leaves, and it's not. It's, it's not like clean. Zach Megan's <laughs> leaving an investigation, just being like, yep, and we helped that family, and he doesn't. You know, I've never seen the sequels, but I'm assuming the fact that there are sequels means that she has to come back and admit that she fucked up at some point. But maybe she Yeah, I haven't seen the sequels either, but, like, um, she is in them. Yeah. You know, she hosted a very scary show. Well, she narrated a show. Um, I think it was called, like, Scariest Places on Earth or something. She did the narration and Linda Blair hosted it. And it was on Fox Family or something. And um, that was a very scary show. And not just, like, as a child, but, like, they would lock people. Like, I remember they did one where they locked, like, graduate, like, anthropology students, like, in with mummies for the night and shit. Chills run down your spine. You break into a cold sweat. Your heart begins to pound. You are afraid. Tonight on scariest places on earth yeah i i really like the kind of family dynamic and clearly with my love of et i'm not opposed to the sort of saccharine steven spielberg storytelling uh vibe and i really i enjoy that here how it's combined with some genuine like really scary shit i think it works on it's, it's a good balance it's a really good movie the effects are so much better than I don't get now. Practical effects, map painting, all that stuff, infinitely preferable, but that's a stance we've obviously taken on this podcast in the past. Really well done movie. Wish Toby Hooper had, however, gotten to do more um, freaky shit with it. There is a very glaring, logical gap in this movie, um, which is kind of, to me, the like chasm of attractiveness between Joe Beth Williams and Greg T. Nelson. <laughs> and I understand that this was a point in time where women were very attracted to men who look like Craig T. Nelson. I'm not saying it's unrealistic. I'm just saying it's wrong. And I feel like I had to comment on that. Yeah. But uh, anyway, uh, Joe Beth, if you ever get tired of your current husband and or your fake movie has been Craig T. Nelson. Give me a call. I'm in the phone book. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, everybody, for listening. Look forward to our next episode. Hopefully this one doesn't get destroyed like our previous one. <laughs> um, and you can find us on our socials and let us know what you thought at BasketPod on Twitter and Instagram. Please rate and review this podcast wherever you listen to it. I've been told it helps. And yeah, I guess my only bit of advice is to, if you are in a haunted house and can leave, do leave. Don't linger. Why the fuck are you staying there? And do not get involved in a legal battle with Pizza Hut. Do not get involved in a legal battle with Steven Spielberg. <laughs> like we might on this podcast. <laughs> I don't hate Steven Spielberg. He's my friend. <laughs> anyway. Thank you all for listening. Keep being spooky. And yeah, bye. Bye. Oh, fat cat update. My cat has lost weight. He's lost half a kilo. Um, so we're very proud of him for doing that. So, good work, girl. Congratulations. He still has 1.3 kilos to lose, but, you know, we're looking at the, the bright side. I did step on his tail today, and I felt like committing seppuku after 
I did it. Uh, and he's very weird because normally cats make some kind of noise if you step on their tail. And he just is completely silent whenever, like, you accidentally trip over him or something. Because he's a very underfoot cat. Like, he's just always in the wrong place at the wrong time. And, um, yeah, he's just silent, which makes me think that he's probably possessed. But anyway, 